0: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report.
1: It feels good.
2: Hello again and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, where we talk about astronomy and space science and all sorts of other things and it's great to have your company. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host. And on today's edition, episode 290, by the way, uh, we're going to do what we do traditionally every fifth episode, and that is dedicate the entire show to the audience. So these are questions that have come from you, some we've heard from before, some we have heard from for the very first time. Uh, And not surprisingly, given that the James Webb Space Telescope has reached its destination, it uh, has be, become the, um, the, the, the go-to uh, topic when it comes to audience questions. So we're going to tackle a couple of questions about James Webb, but one of our old favourites is back, and that is the black hole. We'll uh, talk about that as well. And look-back times. This is interesting. This sort of relates to the James Webb t- Space Telescope, but it's more specifically about how we... Um, sort of look into space and see what we're seeing, Uh, and uh, and plenty more, including uh, questions about satellites in space and radiation shielding. That's all to come on this edition of Space Nuts. And joining me as always, uh, my better half, my partner in crime, the man who knows all the answers to all the questions in the universe and beyond. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew, no pressure there, of course. None at all. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be right. Always, yeah. That's a great Australian attitude. She'll be right. She'll be right. Now, I know uh, if you watch on YouTube, you can generally see where we are and what we're doing. Can you
1: see what's over my shoulder, Fred? Yes, I can. I can see a garment. A garment, is that what you're calling it? It's a garment. That that is
2: something I've had for many, many years, a couple of decades. It is a Cincinnati Bengals jersey, and I've got it hanging up proudly because the Cincinnati Bengals are into the Super Bowl. (laughs) So to our Cincinnati listeners, why not us? Why not us? Why not us? (laughs) I'm very, very hopeful. Can't wait. I'll be stuck in an airport when the game's on, so hopefully they'll have it on there.
1: Uh, um, yeah. Hopefully, Andrew. Hopefully.
2: Yes. I, I love American football. I I understand the rules. I know how it all works. And uh I, I, I've been a follower of the Bengals, a long suffering follower for nearly forty years. So I, I got my fingers and toes and everything crossed in anticipation. Very and good. playing against uh the Rams, I think. I I do like the Rams too. If if Cincinnati hadn't made it, I would have gone for the Rams. So um but I'm not gonna fall back on that. It's Cincinnati all the way for me. Uh, Okay, now enough of that, enough of that. Nothing to do with space except the stuff between our ears. Uh, Let's get on to our very first question, Fred, and this one comes from Amsterdam.
3: Hi guys, this is Bart from Amsterdam, the Netherlands.
4: I was wondering now with the James Webb telescope in space and doing very well, luckily,
2: um, and thinking about that it, it will maintain maybe for 20 years uh, working um, and, it take, and it's taken a lot of time to develop this one.
4: Are scientists already working on
2: another telescope that's even has that even has more possibilities than uh, the James Webb now? Okay, keep up the good work. Bye-bye from Amsterdam. Thank you, Bart. Lovely to hear from you. Hope all is well in beautiful Amsterdam. And uh, yeah, the James Webb Telescope is certainly getting a lot of attention, and not surprisingly, it's one of the uh, one of the most uh, exciting projects of, uh, of recent times. Uh, are they working on something bigger and better, Fred? Uh, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Let's move on to our <laughs> <the> next question. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, this is, a, this is a multifaceted question, like they all are. It's you know fantastic to get the questions that have got many different branches to the answer. Uh, and uh, yes, the James Webb is you know it is the current uh, front runner in terms of space observation. Um, a six and a half meter diameter mirror. Now, as you and I have spoken about many times, Andrew. Uh, in astronomical telescopes, size is everything. <laughs> uh, it, they don't miniaturize; they need to be big uh, because the the bigger the area of the whatever it is that's collecting the radiation, and for uh, optical and um, you know visible light and infrared telescopes, it's it's a mirror. Um, that the the diameter of that means two things: you can collect more radiation, which means you can see fainter objects. But also uh, the laws of physics help you because the bigger your mirror, the more detail you can see. Uh, it improves what we call the resolution in the in the image. So a six and a half meter telescope is a huge step forward in space. I uh, don't want, in any sense, to uh, um, to, to you know to minimise the, the the challenge and the triumph so far of the James Webb Space Telescope. It's an enormous instrument, six and a half meter. It's um, mm. actually very, very much among the bigger class of ground-based telescopes uh, in the current era. Uh, so that will it will really revolutionise what we know about the universe on many, many different fronts. Uh, but astronomers um, they, they suffer from an ailment which is called Aperture Fever. And it starts with amateur astronomers who buy a telescope, just like the one you've got. And you'll probably get it eventually, yeah. Andrew, where you you know, you think, yeah, this telescope's fantastic, but I just really need something a bit bigger just to let me see that other moon of Jupiter that I can't spot or whatever. And that's that's the onset of Aperture Fever. Para, um, you know, paracetamol helps uh, to kind of cool things down, but really the only way to deal with it is to buy a <laughs> your telescope.
2: Uh, so <laughs> so um, I, think, I think i'm already suffering that and i haven't i haven't
1: really been into it that much yet <laughs> yeah. and so professional astronomers are the same um, but the, it's it's a it's a really interesting thing because the james webb is optimized for infrared radiation and it's in in space um because it can look at wave bands in the infrared that are actually absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere, um, so that's you know a great reason for putting it into space. Likewise, with the Hubble telescope, when that was launched, um, it is a, it, it is a visible light or optical telescope, but with strong ultraviolet capability, it pushed our. Access to space radiation, well into the ultraviolet, far more than we can see from Earth, because the Earth's atmosphere is really good at absorbing ultraviolet radiation, which is good because otherwise we'd all be burnt to a frazzle with sunburn. Um, so the the Hubble uh, was sort of optimized for for UV. Now the Hubble's much smaller than uh, than the James Webb, but of course there's a quid pro quo here because the the resolution, the amount of detail you can see, is is uh, it's proportional, inversely proportional to the wavelength. You see more detail with smaller wavelengths and ultraviolet is smaller. So the Hubble actually in some ways is comparable with the James Webb Space Telescope, even though the James Webb is much bigger because it's infrared, it needs to be bigger to see similar detail. But but of mm. course, that the, 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 the big plus is its size will let it gather more light. So to, to get to the question, there there are things on the horizon and I might just mention a couple One is actually a project that is already, uh, it's it's in fact already signed off on and will launch no later than May 2027. It is called the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, usually shortened as the Roman Telescope. Who was Nancy Grace Roman? She was one of the driving forces behind the Hubble Telescope. Uh, So you can sort of see a link there. It's been named after her. But it, it is actually. Uh, It's an existing telescope mirror, 2.4 metres in diameter, the same size as Hubble. But the difference will be uh, that it will be a wide-field telescope. So unlike the Hubble, which homed in on tiny areas of space, this can do the same thing, but over much wider areas of space uh, as well. Um, And it will carry, uh, once again, a near-infrared camera, providing a sharpness of images really comparable to the Hubble uh, but over a, a much bigger field of view, so it's almost a successor to the Hubble. So, in a sense, that doesn't rival the James Webb. It's not the next really big thing. Um, there is uh, in in uh, the uh, U.S. Decadal Plan for Astronomy, the 2020 Decadal Plan. Um, there is, uh, 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 you know, so this this is something the astronomical community puts together. It's the same thing happens here in Australia. Uh, they wanted a six metre optical telescope, an ultraviolet telescope, so something the equivalent of the Hubble, but with a six metre mirror, in other words, comparable in diameter with the James Webb. So that is likely to be the next big thing. And once again, it's all about, um, you know, looking at exoplanets and characterising their their atmospheres, which is one of the things that James Webb will do. So... Uh, th- to, to come back to Bart's question, the answer is yes. But let me just add one more caveat. This taken a long time. I'm sorry, Andrew. And that is that um, since the Hubble was launched, our technologies for minimizing the effects of the Earth's atmosphere have come along by leaps and bounds. And so you can now do Hubble class detail imaging from the ground. Uh, yeah. With some of the, you know, the telescopes on the on the Palma and the Canary Islands, and Mauna Kea in Hawaii, down in Chile at Cerro Paranal, uh, they have these adaptive optic systems, which means you can recover the detail in the image that the Earth's atmosphere blurs. And of course, the next generation of telescopes with their twenty-plus meter mirrors, they too will be equipped with this sort of kit. Uh, which means that in some ways they're going to be they're going to outclass the space telescopes because they're much bigger. Um, mm. But what they can't do is look at radiation that is absorbed by the atmosphere, so mid infrared radiation or ultraviolet radiation. They need space space technology.
2: Uh, will
1: Hubble keep operating? They're not planning on decommissioning that, are they? I think it's uh, scheduled to operate for as long as its gyros last out. Um, um, the problem with the Hubble is is a large piece of space junk. It's a very heavy, uh, a, a massive, um, you know, orbiting body. Uh, so it needs to be. It's in a 600 kilometer orbit, but it does need to be deorbited. And I think the last mission, servicing mission, I hope I'm right in saying this, but it's as I recall things, they attached um, a mounting points onto the outside of the Hubble. This was the the, the, the one uh, uh, before. I think it was in. Is it, before 2011, when the shuttle, uh, you know, wrapped up, uh, they replaced gyros on the Hubble, and um, and also f- um, put these grapnel points on the outside, so a future robotic spacecraft can can um, dock with it, and deorbit it uh, by using its thrusters to to bring it down. Mm. Okay. Don't know when that'll be. Very interesting. Yeah. Mm, no mm. plans at the moment. I think. No. Well, just keep using it till. It- yeah, till he dies, yeah. It's still a fantastic um, resource for astronomy. Absolutely. Yes, indeed.
2: Good to know they're going to keep going that way as well, which, um, well, you know, just expand our knowledge regardless of exactly. which method they use. Exactly. Uh, the technology is advancing so fast. Thank you, Bart, for your question. Let's move on to an old friend of ours, Paddy the Roofer. G'day, Fred and Andrew. Paddy here, Roofer. Um my daughter, Alyssa, um, has got one more question um, about the James Webb. Now, it's a million kilometres away, and she says, well, how is it that far away? And if it's that far away, can it take a picture of Earth or where we live? Um, yeah, I, I thought that was actually amazing what she said. But, um, yeah, can it take a picture of Earth? Um That'll look pretty awesome, I think. And that's what she reckons, too. So, uh, may the force be with you. And uh,
1: yeah, that's it.
2: Uru. Uh-huh. Uru. Uh, thanks, Patty. Um, and uh, Alyssa, nice to hear from you. And they said a follow up question. Well, actually, it was a preemptive question to that. We got two questions uh, one about taking photos of Earth from James Webb, but also, will it be able to take photos of exoplanets? That's something that we uh, really should be considering uh, will it be powerful enough to actually get an image of an exoplanet uh, good and proper? That that's a, that's a good question. It's certainly going to be quite powerful. Uh, but uh, let's go with the first part of the question, uh, photos of Earth. Will it be able to do that? Is it going to be tasked
1: to do that? No, it won't. And the reason <laughs> is, um, so the, the reason why it's a million kilometers away, uh, a big part, a million and a half kilometers, it's a million miles, um, is to put it in orbit around the stable point, the, the L2 Lagrange point. Um, and that that point is uh, di- directly opposite the the sun from the Earth. So there's the sun, the Earth, and the L2 point, all in a straight line with the James Webb in orbit around the L2 point. The reason why it's there is to give it um, a a nice uniform thermal background. In other words, the the heat of of the sun on the spacecraft, it actually will fall on the radiation shield. Uh, That is to keep the spacecraft's temperature at, I don't know, it's about 20 degrees above absolute zero. It's very, very cold. Um, So the last thing you want to do and it would fry everything. It would fry the electronics and everything. Is turn it round so that the heat shield is no longer protecting the telescope from the sun's radiation, and point right. it back towards the Earth with the sun nicely in the background. There, um, it is not going to happen, and uh, the, the telescope will always be looking in the other direction uh, to keep okay. it safe and out of the way. Uh, it's a nice idea, but but it's the wrong telescope for doing that. It has to be kept. Absolutely cold. Mm.
2: What about photos of exoplanets?
1: It will do that, I'm sure. Um, And there are, um, there are already um, a handful of exoplanets that have been directly imaged. It's probably, I think, it's less than twenty, if I remember rightly, by uh, telescopes equipped with devices that sort of block out the light of the parent star. So what you need. Is the uh, adaptive optics systems we were just talking about, which uh, get rid of the um, you know the distorting effect of the Earth's atmosphere, and you need an instrument called a coronagraph, uh, which is uh, which is a device that um, it's basically just a, a mask in the uh, in the focus of the telescope that blocks out the light of a star and lets you see what's around it. It lets you look at its environment in great detail. And there Mm -hmm. are just a few planetary systems um, that kind of lend itself to this sort of technology. Most of our exoplanets have been discovered by indirect methods. uh, So it's quite rare to be able to see direct uh, images of exoplanets. You can find them on the web. Uh, There's actually a movie of one of those systems. Uh, where there are four planets doing this lovely resonant set of... Oh, I've seen that, I think, yeah. It's fabulous stuff. Uh, But that's a rarity. Um, But um, I think the hope of planetary scientists is that the James Webb will actually increase the number of targets where we can see the direct, you know, see direct images of exoplanets. Mm, All right.
2: Thank you, Paddy. Thank you, Alyssa. And uh, hopefully we answered your question. Uh, Just before we depart from the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, the news this week... Uh, aside from its arrival at its destination, is that uh, they have announced its first target, or one of its first targets, and that is a star in Ursa Major uh, in the constellation of the Great Bear, HD 84406, 241 light-years away. Uh, They chose that one because, A, you can't see it with the naked eye from Earth, but, uh, B, it seems to be an Earth-like uh sun or a a, a sun, sun uh, star similar to our own sun. So um it that's that's why it's interesting to us. Uh so th- that appears to be the first target for it.
1: Yep. Um and we <laughs> wait the images of that with interest. <laughs> yes.
2: It's gonna be a few months yet, isn't it? It is, you yeah. Really... It's a few months. It's yeah, right. mid year probably before they um start sending us piggies. Uh Quite so Instagram I believe. Instagram yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll continue shortly. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson.
4: Zero G and I feel
2: fine. Space Nuts. I'd just like to send a little shout out to our patrons, the people who choose uh, off their own bat to sur- uh, uh, support us financially uh we really are appreciative of that and uh there are several people that do that uh well they're in the hundreds now so that is fantastic uh if you would like to t- uh, look into becoming a patron you can do that via our website spacenutspodcast.com, and just click on the supporter tab and find out more about it uh we're not going to make you do it we're never going to uh, make um the the, the, the the departing departing of money from you to us a mandatory part of the, the deal. It is certainly optional, but uh, for those who have certainly uh, decided to do that, and it was a listener idea at the very beginning, uh, thank you, and uh, it is greatly appreciated. Uh, now, let's uh, continue with the questions, Fred, and our next one comes from, I think it's
0: New York. Hi, Andrew and Fred. I have a question. Relating to the James Webb Telescope. This is Richard from New York, and I love your show. I have questions about the plan to peer into the deep past to see the stars and galaxies from the first billion years after the Big Bang. What I do not understand is how one can do that. Now, I understand that distant objects whose light is very much red-shifted are furthest away and receding from us the fastest, and that they are presumably older because the light they emitted and that we see traveled so long to get to us. But it seems to me that any object that emitted light during the first billion years was necessarily a lot closer to our vantage point, the universe having been smaller then, and that light emitted must have passed us in space long ago. So how can we ever see it? Now, if we are carried by expanding space away from that light source faster than the speed of light, then the light will not reach us at all or will be visible behind us as we catch up to it. If the light is riding on expanding space along with us and always traveling at the relative speed of light like it's supposed to, then that early light should still have passed us by. We cannot see yesterday's light. Once I was told that the telescope can be aimed in every direction to see the beginning of the universe because there is no center point of origin. Space expanded everywhere, so everywhere is the same. Nevertheless, everywhere will have emitted its early light so long ago that it still must have passed us here long ago. So where am I going wrong? Look forward to your answer. Thanks a lot. Actually,
2: uh, Richard, while you were um, uh, going through your question, I was watching Fred and he was nodding and shaking his head. So
1: <laughs> I think
2: what happened there is you were hitting a nail and you hit it a few times and you missed it a few times. <laughs> so, um, yeah, okay. Um, Richard did ask where he went wrong. So, um, yeah, you know, where do you want to start?
1: Uh, well, let's at start, at start at the, at the beginning. <laughs> um, the, 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 the bit that uh, Richard was saying about the universe being effectively the same in all directions is is correct. Um, and yes, we can look back to s- still see the flash of the Big Bang, uh, which is the most distant and, and most ancient thing we can see. So the, the first thing is to forget all about light going past you. Just don't think of that, because that's not the way to visualise it. What you have to visualise is us here on planet Earth in the solar system, uh, attached to the Orion spur in the near the Sagittarius arm in the galaxy. There you are, that's the full address. Uh, that's our vantage point. And everything, all we can see is stuff that's coming towards us. Now, there's light going in all directions, all around the universe, uh, going past us, doing all the rest of it. But that none of that is of any... Importance to us. Uh, the only thing that's important is what comes to us here on Earth, and that's that sort of makes it easy, really, because it means that we are at this effectively at the center of this bubble of space with light coming towards us. The only light that we can detect is what's coming in our direction, mm. and yes, it, it has the attributes that uh, uh, that Richard has mentioned. First thing to do is to uh, forget about the expansion. Just imagine that the universe is not expanding. Uh, it's it, it, it's it's a reasonable assumption to make because it's a separate issue from the lookback time issue. Okay, so you've got this universe, this huge volume of space, and the the light moving around in it is traveling at three hundred thousand kilometers per second, the speed of light in a vacuum, and that's why. When we look further and further into space, we're always looking further and further back in time, and uh, and it, you know the, the the idea of light going past us is irrelevant. All that's relevant is what we receive on Earth, and it's got this exact relationship that the you know you, you look you look out in in space uh, a million light years, you're looking back in time by a million years. You do it for ten billion light years, you're looking back in time. Uh, Ten billion years, and for that reason, we often call it the look back time and the look back right. time is is actually more factually correct than a distance, and that 's because, as Richard says, the universe is expanding so a look back time is really what we measure when we measure the redshift, not so much the distance we 're measuring the look back time it, it, in fact the the actual a mathematical relationship is a really easy one, believe it or not, um, uh, and it's a geometrical one. Uh, so, what you can do is the redshift is, is a quantity that we call z, or I guess Richard would call it z, because uh, that's how it's pronounced on that side of the Pacific. Um, z is measurable. Uh, geometry tells you that the relationship between the size of the universe now and the size of the universe when that stuff was emitted, when that light was emitted, is a very simple formula. It's 1 over 1 plus z. So what it means is if you're looking at an object with a redshift of 1, that light was emitted when the universe was 1 over 1 plus 1, in other words, a half its present size. Um, And that is pure geometry. That's nothing to do with theoretical modeling. That's pure geometry. Maybe I've clouded the issue a little bit there, but um, the the expanding universe is, is, if you like, it's superimposed on the idea of look-back time. Uh, The reason we don't talk about distances is because, yes, the universe has expanded, and uh, as as Richard has said, those very distant galaxies were much closer to us um, uh, when their light was emitted. But they're still emitting light, and we're still seeing it. Um, Some of it. You know, don't worry about the going past us. It's what we can see now that's the critical thing. I don't know, Andrew, whether that clarifies the issue or not. I
2: get it. <laughs> um, I get it. And I'm sure Richard, who is much more astute than I, has, uh, has gone okay.
1: Now I understand. Let me just um, add one more point. So the idea of seeing the birth of the universe, it's actually looking back to a time when the universe was still glowing brightly. So it was still a fireball. and um Yes, we can look back uh, by this method that I said. The further you look, the more the more you're looking back. Eventually, you reach this wall of radiation, uh, about 30.8 billion years look back time. Mm. Um, that wall of radiation, if the universe wasn't expanding, would look. It would still be there. It would still see. We'd still look back to this, but the whole sky would be brilliantly light it will be just that the the sky itself will be glowing brilliantly in visible light but because the expansion of the universe has taken place over 13.8 billion years that light's wavelength has been stretched and it's now microwaves which is why we see it with microwave telescopes
2: okay so just to confuse us more you've got um, distances measured in light years you've got uh, look back time which tells you how long ago the light something was emitted, happened. yep. And there was something else that I just dropped out of my the, head the red that shift relates movement. to it. But yeah. there,
1: there are multiple factors
2: here that you yeah. need to consider depending on circumstance.
1: But, but the main thing is just to forget light that's not coming into our telescopes. All we can do is, all we can see and all we can learn from is the light that actually reaches us from these distant things. Fair enough. All right. Thank you,
2: Richard. Let's uh, go on to our next question. This one comes from uh, an Australian. Damien here from the Goldie, another beautiful day. And a quick question on black holes, amazingly. If you have the size of the black hole and you have the mass of the black hole, if you had protons cheek to cheek inside the black hole, Would they fit in there to equal the mass of the actual black hole? Hmm. Okay. Thanks, Damien. And I hope all is well on. uh, He called it the Goldie for those who went, where the hell is that? The Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. Um, We abbreviate everything over here. So Goldie. (laughs) Um, Now, um, yes. Explain his question, Fred, so that I can understand it. And that way everyone should be able to. Yeah.
1: Well, it's... Damien's question's really interesting, because it, it, it's sort of um, it's got a few inconsistencies in it. if I may put it that way. Uh, let me start by talking about it. Uh, Damien, Damien talks about the size of the black hole and the mass. Um, and a, a black hole doesn't have size. It is a single point. It's a dimensionless entity. It does have mass, however.
2: I did see a a diagram that somebody put up. It might have been on one of the Space Nuts Facebook pages the other day, uh, which was a a simple diagram of a black hole. And it basically sort of went wide, then narrowed down into a flute, and then hit a point that was nothing called a singularity. Yeah. And then it expanded out the other side the same way. So that sounds like that's what you're getting at. Sounds like a wormhole
1: there. Could be a wormhole. Well, yeah. If, it, if it's it's supposed to be a diagram of a black. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, whatever it is, it's got no dimensions. Um, what yeah. does have dimensions though is the event horizon. Um, and so um, you know, the event horizon is the point of no return. It's it's the the black bit of the black hole. Uh but the diameter of the event horizon is directly related to the mass of the black hole. So the two of them are it, you know, they're they're um um inextricably linked together. Now, the bit about if you had a bunch of protons all cheek to cheek, uh, um, then it wouldn't be a black hole. It would be, actually, it would be a neutron star. Neutron stars are made mostly of neutrons, but they do have protons as well, because otherwise they would not be able to have magnetic fields. Uh, And that uh, object is something that, whose density has not become enough for it to collapse into a black hole. Um, so it's it's the result of a collapse, the core of a collapsed star. Uh, <clears throat> I do get what uh, you know what Damien's saying though. Would would uh, a neutron star fill the event horizon of the equivalent black hole? Um, and the answer, if uh, as I remember rightly, neutron stars do have event horizons because they're they're actually um, very dense objects but i think the event horizons are actually inside the neutron star uh, i'd have to check up on that that's um something that's come from somewhere in my brain um you know neutron stars do have uh, physical dimensions black holes don't that's the, the big difference between them of course mm. all right
2: thank you damien hope that helped <laughs> ibuprofen would help too as fred alluded to earlier <laughs> yes <laughs> This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, if you follow social media, of course, you will find us in many, many places. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, And we also have uh, a Facebook page, which is basically designed for the Space Nuts audience, the Space Nuts podcast group. If you do a search for that in your Facebook search engine, you'll you'll find uh, a bunch of people, thousands of people, who listen to the show but also get a, a chance to talk to each other. One of the posts, Fred, that's popped up lately uh, comes from uh, uh, one of our patrons and somebody who does send us questions uh, uh, occasionally, Misty West, who's put up photos of uh, what looks like a spiral galaxy in the sky over Oklahoma. Uh, and she's asking if anyone had seen it and what was it. And one of the answers said uh, it was an orbital insertion burn, which probably is a, a pretty uh, accurate uh, appraisal of, of what the picture is, but is spectacular. The photos are spectacular. So go and have a look at them on the Space Nuts Podcast Group Facebook page. Um, really stunning pictures and uh, quite pretty as well. And while you're there, join the group and Uh, talk to like-minded people about astronomy and space science. That's what it's all about. You don't just have to listen to us. You don't have to listen to us. But uh, you can certainly sort of expand the conversation by being a part of the group. And while you're on Facebook, join the official Space Nuts uh, Facebook page while you're there. Okie dokie, Fred. Let's uh, see what else we can solve today for uh,
3: Simon in Melbourne. Good evening. It's Simon here from Melbourne in Australia, enjoying a nice weekend way down at powerwood Heads. Looking up into the night sky, I've managed to identify cirrus and conopus this evening, which is the first time I've been able to locate both of those two by myself, so it's quite exciting. Lots of people have been telling me to bring down a pair of binoculars and I've done just that this evening and I'm absolutely amazed at how many satellites are up there. At one point this evening I noticed three satellites converging on the one field of view and it was I just can't believe how much stuff's going on up there. As sure as the the, the night is dark, you will see a satellite if you throw a pair of binoculars up into the night sky. Uh, from my perspective, it doesn't bother me too much. It's more exciting to identify them. But if you're an astrophotographer or an astronomer, I can imagine it being very frustrating. So my question to Fred is: What what do you propose doing about this? I understand regulations probably needed, but how would you like to see this organised or structured? And and how do we go about protecting this sky for future people? Because I can understand it becoming very frustrating moving forward. So. I'd like to understand what are we going to do about it. Um, I hope all is well, and thanks for keeping up the good work, guys.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Simon. Great question. And I can tell you that Fred is in negotiation with Disney to commission an X-wing fighter to get up there
1: and deal with the satellite problem. <clears throat> Possibly not. Uh, <laughs> it's, you're treading on... Um, on uh, not on eggshells, but on interestingly uh, interesting ground, Andrew. And look, yeah. um, the short answer to Simon's uh, point is welcome to the 21st century, uh, yeah. because this is an issue now, uh, but by the end of the decade, it is going to be a much, much bigger issue. Uh, we are expecting... At the moment, there are something like two-and-a-half-thousand operational satellites um, in the sky. By the end of the decade, it'll be 100,000. What? Um, which means that at any instant, there will be about 5,000 satellites above your horizon. Uh, now, um, that's uh, because of things like the SpaceX Starlink uh um satellite constellations uh, those are for um they're for a global internet they provide internet services across the entire globe and it, you know there's 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 a level at which that is a good thing and part of the sort of in- infrastructure that perhaps people have a right to expect and um, mm-hmm. and so there is this really interesting um it, it's a dichotomy it's very interesting i'm quite deeply involved with it between the space industry and the world of astronomy <laughs> and oh, the good news is that these two different entities are talking to each other about how you mitigate the damaging effects of satellites on telescopes uh, and of course it's not just astrophotographers uh, in the hobby category it is the world's great observatories, uh, including things like, you know, um, not so much the James Webb, although the Hubble telescope loses about eight percent, I think, of its observations because of interference from other spacecraft. That's a lot, Fred. It is exactly, yeah. So, um, so there's, you, you know, there's, there's this now this relationship um, between the satellite operators and the astronomical world. Um, I have to say. The world of astronomy was taken a bit off guard by this. Uh, it's about three years ago now. Uh, what has prompted it uh, to some extent is something that we all applaud, and that is the reuse of rocket boosters by SpaceX. The fact that um, you know Musk's uh, brilliance in terms of developing the the reusable rocket booster means you can use the same booster to launch ten lots of satellites. Uh, you can use it ten times. Uh, Starlink launches about sixty from one launch vehicle, uh, so it means you you can you've got now got the wherewithal to have these large numbers of spacecraft in orbit. Um, the regulatory body uh, for this is it's a bit esoteric because the regulatory body is there not to 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 regulate how many spacecraft there are in the sky. It's just to re- regulate the spectrum management of the radio signals that those spacecraft provide. It's the International Telecommunications Union. That's the the global body. Each country then has its own agencies that that do the, the regulation. Like here in Australia, we have the Australian Space Agency that does regulation on that. Um, so there's the industry plowing ahead on one side and, and the astronomers uh, who have There were certainly howls of pain at the beginning, Um, but there is a dialogue now that is moving towards, I think, um, you know, some really good measures to mitigate the effects. So the kind of thing you've got to remember is for visual astronomers or optical astronomers, these satellites are only a problem. It depends on your latitude, but they're only a problem within an hour or two of sunset or sunrise, Mm. because that's the time when they're being illuminated. By the sun, and that's the reason why one of the things that the astronomers have asked for is that the uh, spacecraft are, are kept in low Earth orbits. That's to say, below 600 kilometers, because that reduces the time that they're illuminated by sunlight. And that's one of the things that the you know the, this dialogue is is engaging in. Um, so in the middle of the night, there is no problem. You, you don't see th- there are some slightly maybe esoteric problems if you have a satellite that blocks out the light of an object that you're you're expecting to be winking anyway for some reason or another that will be a problem but generally speaking once you get past the twilight zone you're not you're not actually seeing uh, the spacecraft however in the radio spectrum it's a much bigger problem because these things are beaming down radiation all the time and, yeah. and not just that, but for our telescopes, the most sensitive radio telescopes, and of course the Square Kilometre Array being built in South Africa and in Western Australia, is one of those. Uh, they can also receive radiation from from you know local radio transmitters providing AM signals to their community. They can bounce back off the satellites down into the into the radio telescopes. Um, so there are big issues for radio astronomers. Um, mm. As I said, it's a matter under discussion. Uh, in a few days' time, uh, there will be the start of a meeting in Vienna. Uh, that is a UN meeting. It's the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses um, of Outer Space. Uh, and they really will include like among their discussions disconnected uh, or discussion disconnected of what is generally lumped under the heading of Dark so I don't, and Quiet I don't sounds, know what's happened there. Dark for optical astronomers, quiet for radio astronomers. Uh, and um, in fact, I'm... Going to be part of the Australian delegation on that okay. I think it's a secret to say that and we'll okay. be uh, presenting a technical paper on this but it's a it's a interesting area it's not just something you know um uh, Simon's question was what can we do about it well we're doing our very best uh to bring these two uh, disparate um you know disparate uh fields of activity together uh, to make them compatible
2: there you go Simon hopefully that resolves uh your problem or you, you didn't actually have a problem with satellites, but you might in a few years uh, with 100,000 of them expected to be up there. But um, anyway, thanks for your question. Uh, good to know, Fred, that the two sides are talking, hopefully not the way Russia and the United States or the Russia and uh, <laughs> Russians and uh, the, the Americans and the Chinese are talking or Australia and France for that matter. Uh, hopefully it's more like a couple of blokes over a beer or having a cup of coffee together and they'll sort it all out in the end. Fingers crossed. Okay. Let us move on to our final question. And this one, uh, focuses on long haul space travels. Uh, it's something we've talked about before, but it's a good question.
4: Hello, space nuts. Martin Berman-Gorvine here, writer extraordinaire in many genres. Um, just, uh, Quick question about radiation shielding on spacecraft that are going to go much beyond low Earth orbit. Um, We are told this is going to be a major problem for any proposed Mars expeditions. Uh, One assumes it would be an even greater problem going further out, say, if one were going to try to do manned mining of the asteroid belt or explore the Jovian and Sertanian wounds and so forth. Um, what kind of radiation shielding, uh, to preserve human life might be possible on spacecraft and is it conceivable that instead, um, it just makes more sense to send automated probes to do all that stuff for us. Thanks. Love you guys.
2: Thanks, Martin. Lovely to hear from you again. Uh, it is a a big issue for future travel, especially as as Martin mentioned, uh, sending humans to Mars. Uh, but uh, I think ultimately we might be looking at going even further when when we improve speed and technology that will enable us to do those trips in reasonable timeframes. Uh, but uh, at this point in time, yeah, exposure to radiation is one of the problems. But um, the the health implications of zero g uh also have to be considered uh so they're probably working on uh, artificial gravity as a part of this whole picture so uh yeah what what uh, are they working on in terms of radiation shielding
1: uh thanks andrew yeah it's a it's a great question from martin and um i mean what martin says at the end is really the key to it send robots Uh, And we can do that um, for a lot of the tasks that we would like to accomplish in exploring the outer solar system or the inner solar system as well, for that matter. Uh, And I suspect if ever we do get to a stage where we're mining asteroids or other celestial bodies, that it will be done mostly robotically uh, with, uh, you know, as little human intervention as possible. Partly because this is recognized as such a big problem. Um, the radiation environment in space is pretty harsh, and uh, you know it, you, you're right to, to highlight the, the 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 more extreme version of the radiation em- environment that we would get in going beyond Mars. Mars is is really the first hurdle, and there's a lot of work being done on that. You can bet your life on that, um, and I'm pointing to to some of it in a minute, but. Uh, if you're going beyond Mars, you know, heading to the asteroid belt or out towards the moons of Jupiter, uh, first of all, you've got the, the the bad thing, which is that you're going to be in space for much longer because these distances um, don't just increase linearly. The distances as planets go further out, they get more and more remote. Uh, so you're talking about much greater distances if you're heading for the asteroid belt of Jupiter. Um, against that, though, is the advantage that the radiation environment gets a bit easier because the you know you're further away from the sun, which is the principal source of of this radiation. So there's a bit of um, interplay on both sides, quid pro quo. Mm. However, the the basic problem is not a straightforward one, and um, I'd, I'd actually point uh, Martin towards uh, a really excellent publication from NASA, which will be easy to find. It is called. It's part of the spacefaring series of NASA uh, uh, documents, and it's called the Radiation Challenge. Huh? Radiation Challenge. There is one. Uh, I think this is a one module of that uh, of that uh, course, if you can put it that way. Module three is radiation countermeasures. How do you protect against radiation? And there is a lot in this particular document. Uh, the um, you know the the, the spacefaring. Um, radiation challenge document uh, it, really a lot of food for thought and because the problem is not as simple as you might think um you know our natural thinking in terms of protection from radiation is <laughs> sheets of lead yeah. and things of that sort um which is not really that Friendly towards being hauled up on a spacecraft. Mm. Oh, but, water, but, too, wasn't someone talking about yes, wa- water? Yes, wa- water is another possibility. And I think that actually, I think it's water that is likely to be the most commonly used. But some of these materials, um, you know, you get hit by a cosmic ray. Um, and, and actually, the cosmic ray environment doesn't change throughout the solar system because the cosmic rays are coming from way beyond the solar system. So and they're higher energy, actually, than the sun's radiation. So th- this is all part of the complexity of the issue. Um, so you might well get, uh, for cosmic rays, they'll hit something in your shielding and you get a whole cascade of secondary particles being given off, which are just as dangerous as the cosmic ray itself. Mm. Uh, so uh, really there is, there is um, a lot of uh, thought and insight that has to go into this. I know that NASA have been investigating, well, electrostatic shielding, where you try and generate an electrical field field around your spacecraft so that the the radiation gets bent away from the spacecraft. And um, plastic shielding is another possibility as well. Um, But there are countermeasures, uh, perhaps indirect countermeasures which might be a bit surprising andrew dietary countermeasures for example oh. uh, operational countermeasures they're talking mm-hmm. about um there's a whole lot of material on dietary countermeasures how you i would, you, I would you have thought, thought eating lead would not be a good thing <laughs> it's that sort of thing um, it's actually what you don't eat i think that that uh, that is the um, you know that's the the the, the trick to this Hmm. What well, don't they, don't, talk about don't
2: take any antibiotics while you're out there either. They they can cause sunburn. Well,
1: in, you know the, the kinds of things. Okay, here's here's something in this module: shielding yeast from ultraviolet radiation. There's a it's an exercise within this uh, module of education about um, about how you can uh, you know you can take radiation countermeasures. So I I urge. Uh, Anybody interested in this, have a look at that. It's uh, really, it's part of the, you know some of NASA's nas- national education uh, modules, mm. but really very, very interesting in terms of what, what you learn from something like that.
2: I, I did, in fact, um, try to contribute to that uh, module, Fred, but they
1: didn't think aluminium hats was a real good idea. <laughs> Sounds like a very Aussie solution, does that? You've <laughs> got Generally... twist, twist them at the top as well. <laughs> A little pointy bit.
2: (laughs) Yes, I think that's been portrayed in many films. Mm. Uh, So they're working on it, I think, is the answer, Martin. That's the the bottom line. They're working on it. Yeah, Yeah, no solutions yet, but uh, some pretty good ideas. And again, lovely to hear from you. Thanks to everybody who contributed to this week's episode, Uh, All Questions. Uh, It only took us uh, six or seven hours to put the show together in about 25 takes, didn't it, Fred?
1: It was not the easiest recording of Space Nuts that we've done, Andrew, but um, it sounds as though we're getting there, thanks to your sterling efforts and probably some of Fuse as well later on.
2: I would equate it to the most difficult one we've had so far, but uh, okay, you know, there, if I can, can solve it, NASA's going to do some great things into the future. Yeah. If I'd put my aluminium hat on earlier, we would have finished this this morning. <laughs>
1: Uh, so you're blaming the radiation. Right? <laughs> That's right. It's all about the radiation, yes. Yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, thanks to everybody again for uh, for sending in your questions. We'll uh, get a pile more done as we uh, move over the next series of episodes. Uh, don't forget, to, um through your regular podcast platform to give us a review. Uh, we've been getting some great reviews, and thank you so much to those who have put up reviews. Uh, lots of uh, five-star reviews. Uh, uh, ratings uh, a couple of four and a half stars because they don't like my jokes well you know what <laughs> they're not gonna stop uh, but uh yeah thanks for the reviews it's really fantastic uh, and while you're online uh, please visit our website check out the shop you can send your questions through our website as well in text and audio form and uh, you can do a lot of other things there as well while you're browsing around space nuts, uh space nuts podcast.com or space that Finally brings us to the end of this week's episode. Fred, thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Andrew. Thank you for
1: persevering. And we'll speak again soon.
2: We will. And if people have noticed through the high definition picture that I've got a bit more stubble than I had in the first two segments, it's the time difference that's caused that. At least we continued to wear the same clothing. It's just like making movies. Anyway, uh, thanks for your company again and we look forward to your uh, uh, look forward to you joining us on the very next episode of Space Nuts until then.